And so we're excited about that. And uh, but. If you decide to give to Kenya, we're not going to, get, you know, turn that away. But uh, God has provided, and we're really excited. Uh, we leave the hill tomorrow at 1130. And um, we'll be going from LAX to London. And uh, we have a good stop at London, and then from London to Nairobi. Over 20 hours in the air, airtime. And then when we get to the airport in Nairobi at about 6 in the morning, just about that time, we have a full day ahead of us that day. We have to shop for our district, our pastors, our pastors' conference, and all the things that we do for the pastors. Uh, we're going to have it in. We usually take two or three days to do that, but we're into one day. And that's the day we get there. And... Uh, Um, we our recent email from Sharon Cranford, the missionary there, she said that uh, you know it's you're in for a real adventure in Karagoya because we can't go back to the hotel that we were we have been at for several years because of the political unrest, and we think that it's that's dangerous for them if we you know uh, insisted. So we're following their lead, and they have a place prepared for us, but. That might be two candles, a dirt floor, and a cot. I, uh, so we don't know what to expect, but um, we'll be going to our district for a few days and then uh, the retirement for Overseer Moses and the installation of the new Overseer Helam and then preaching Christmas morning at the campus church back in Nairobi, actually in Limuru. And... Um, having Christmas goat and feast, that'll be Christmas Day. And uh, we're looking forward to a spiritual, non-materialistic Christmas. We just are. And uh, I'm excited about preaching the Word on Christmas morning. You know, I haven't done that too many times, except for when Christmas has fallen on a Sunday. And then uh, from there... We go to Mombasa and I'm preaching at a church on the December 28th in Mombasa, spending a few days there, and then going to Arusha, Tanzania, Bible College there and churches, and then we'll be in the foothills of Kilimanjaro, and, and then back on their way to Nairobi and flying out on the 8th and getting here on the 9th. And we won't be worth anything till about the 15th, so... <laughs> So thank you for sending us, and this is my 10th trip, and Trisha's 8th trip, and uh, you've been supporting this district and uh, working in Kenya for 10 years. I want to thank you. Our first assignment is to organize a trip to Israel. No. Just kidding. Just kidding. She would do that. Run with that ball. Well, I got lots of tools here today, don't I? This is my little desk down here. This is just in case it snows before I go home, actually. <laughs> I never know what I'm going to find on my desk. Here. Those, are, those are evidently granddaughter boots. 
you know, I don't want to pass up saying publicly how thrilling it is to have the Easts here. Just blew my mind when Dave walked through the door. Now, I don't even remember David and Gail East. Now, only a few of us might, but how long have you been gone? Seven years. Dave served as a, the emergency room doctor here in town for us for a number of years. And, and uh, Gail's RN and taking care of all of us, making us healthy. They're still doing that, but now they're doing it in Texas. And doing lots of other things, too, from your letter. Wow, that's great. And Mom's here, and Joe, and we welcome you. And uh, I can't imagine why you're here. Why are you here? Vacation. <laughs> what a great... How do you ever get time off, Dave? It's amazing. Yeah, you just say, I'm going. <laughs> the emergencies will have to be covered by somebody else. You're loving what you're doing, huh? Praise God. Ministers for Jesus in more than one way. He lays hands on people every day. <laughs> Think of that. Amen. Well, as we get started this morning, uh, well, actually, I'm just kind of coming in in the middle, aren't I? We've got a great start going. I'm going to ask you to do something with me, and that's a picture in your mind an early American farm. I mean, early, early American farm. Maybe a little house on the prairie style. I mean, you know, a little house on the prairie. You know, and there they come riding their buckboard up over there looking for their place. And finally they come over that little crest of a hill and they sort of start down and he says, there it is. Right? What is his wife thinking at that point? I've always wondered. <laughs> I know how meaningful that moment is for the series, but, uh, you know, I, I imagine she's looking down there saying, where's the mall? <laughs> There's no mall here. We're not, this just can't be it. No. They pick out a the early American farmer would pick out a plot and homestead it and uh, and then go to work on it right cutting trees and building a log house and clearing the land and take his horse and round it up and pull the rocks out of place and tell he had a fertile field that he could work with and then he would do what the Bible says in Genesis where uh, because of the curse he would earn his living by the sweat of his brow. And so picture with me that man with his plow horse uh, making his way through that field and believing the whole time that he was carving out a future for himself and for his family. He was committing himself to a future of hard work and blessing. And through the work of his hands and the sweat of his brow, he would till that land and plant the seed and and, uh, wait and nurture the harvest and then take in the harvest. And with that harvest, he would feed his family and often then use the goods to barter with for the other services he might need, you know, like sharpening his plow or implements or tools or maybe a new stove, a nice wood stove for that kitchen. Dual purpose, huh? Cooking and heating right there in the center of the house. Don't you wish you had one of those? Go like this. Go like this. It's probably still made by Kenmore. So all over this America, we had men and women uh, in, in these fields who were faithful to the process of simple farming to provide for their family. And they believed in a simple life and a hard-working life. But it wasn't long before machinery came and, and uh, modernization came. And there was that guy with his plow down in the, his field. And then this other thing came roaring into the land and began to literally cultivate thousands of acres, hundreds and thousands of acres at one time. And, and eventually this farmer 
was relegated, if you will, downtraded, if you know, to a little patch of land, and it was okay for him to stay on his patch of land and till it and do it by hand if he wanted to. But we're gonna, you know, modern society says we're gonna do hundreds and hundreds of acres at one time. And uh, we're going to go for progress, and we've got bigger dreams of productivity, and we've got uh, glittering in our eyes of materialism and success, and other things are motivating these larger farmers. And I speak from experience, even though I was young. I come from Illinois, land of Lincoln, and was born in a hospital, but raised on a farm. He's going to say I was born on a farm. He gives you the wrong picture. Um, And... When we finally did sell our farm, it was down to 170 acres. That's all that was left. And you might say, well, that's a lot of land. Well, not if you're a farmer. Because the guy that bought our farm had 5,000 acres. And he just sort of kind of kicked it off on the edge of his. And now it's a piece, you know, for his son to take care of. So large farming relegated the small farmer to a little patch. And, and the picture I'm wanting to give you this morning in this is that Modern society said, it's okay for you to believe what you want as long as you keep it on your little farm. You can work hard. You can provide for your family. You can practice your beliefs of providing for your family as long as you want to over there. But we're going to build a little box around you because your methods are antiquated. And you're really not that useful to the whole picture of the farming industry, are you? You're just a postage stamp in what's happening. And in the early founding of this country, and uh, if I don't know if you can, I'm a picturesque person, so when I say this, I'm literally standing off in the Atlantic Ocean looking across the United States from the East Coast and seeing all the way to California, and I'm seeing this grand land of ours spread out in front of the Puritans, if you will. When they came and they, they saw this nation as a fertile field, they saw this as a place to till and to plant the gospel of Jesus Christ. They came here for freedom of worship and for unfettered and unrestrained process in following God. And they looked out over this landscape, and of course they didn't have any clue how, how long or wide it was. But are you staying with me in the picture? And they said, this is a place where God can be in control. This is a place where we'll build a society that follows God and honors God. And it's not going to be ruled over by men or ecclesiastical structures that will be limiting our faith or telling us what we can believe but it wasn't long before the machinery rolled in and said you know what your ways are antiquated and you're a small farmer in this outfit and we've got other ideas for this nation and we're going to build a productive machine that's going to be run by media and modernization and we're going to have a thing called secularism and that's going to be our God in fact we're going to push you down and we're going to take the church and your little gospel experiment And we're going to relegate you to a little corner plot. And we'll say to you, the church, as a nation, that it's okay if you practice what you want to believe over there in the corner. But don't ever try and get that out of the box and bring it on to mainstream society. Because the day you come out of that place and say, I want to say to the nation that we need to bow our knee to Jesus again. We need to go back to our roots and we need to find our original structures. You're going to be shouted down. And if we can... And I'm going to play a couple of audio clips for you here in a minute from Dr. Jerry Johnson. And this man was a man who stood up 
and made some declarations like that from his little plot of ground. And the next thing that happened to him is that they investigated his church. The tax structures came, the government came, and investigated his church. And, and listen to this. They decided to tax him based on how many Bibles he'd given away. And how many food, how many meals he had served to the hungry. Trumpet. Tell my people. He's getting a head start. And Jerry's anxious to start. And they came in and they, they made his accounting people go back five and ten years and calculate the number of meals they'd served and the number of Bibles that they had purchased and given away and said, you owe us sales tax on all of that. And the bill was, you could get a copy of the CD and hear him yourself, but I think the bill was, it was just astronomical. It was like $150,000. And they had to go to court and they had to prove and come on, you know, what is this? Uh, and they got the bill down to like ten dollars or $12,000 and they paid it to just get out of the deal. That is not the picture of the United States that we were founded upon. And in fact, you'll hear in his testimony a reference to Ezra 7.28, which is the scripture that was used by the founding fathers to make tax, or churches tax-exempt. It is true. You're not going to, you may look at me and cross your eyes if you grew up in the public school system like I did. You're going to hear some things in the next few moments that you probably never heard. Because revisionist history has taken a lot of these facts right out of the history books. It's not an, uh, it shouldn't surprise us that things that are being taught are not entirely true. And that the entire truth is being withheld. Let me read to you a couple of things that are on my mind. Here this morning, have you ever heard of Patrick Henry? Famous words, give me liberty or give me death. He was called the firebrand of, of the American Revolution and is still remembered for those words. But in current textbooks, the context of these words is deleted. Here's what he said. An appeal to arms and the God of hosts is all that is left us. But we shall not fight our battle alone. There is a just God that presides over the destinies of nations. The battle, sir, is not of the strong alone. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. These sentences have been erased from our textbooks. Did you know the 52 of the 55 signers of the Declaration of Independence were Orthodox, deeply committed believers? And that the other three all believed in the Bible as the divine truth, of, that the God of Scripture, and they believed in His personal intervention. It is the same Congress that formed the American Bible Society, Society. Immediately after creating the Declaration of Independence, the Continental Congress voted to purchase and import 20,000 copies of Scripture for the people of this new nation. These are your founding fathers. And I've got four pages of these. From Jefferson, Washington. Colossians chapter 1. And if you're with us in the Truth Project, this is a foundational moment for what you're going to see this week in your cell groups. And if you're not in a cell group, may I plead with you, please get into one of our lighthouses. They're listed here on the back of this bulletin. 
the people that came up and prayed. There's a passel of them here this morning that are lighthouse keepers, small group leaders for us. And this week, uh, those of us who are you know in the groove on number ten are going to be talking about the American, the Great American Experiment. But I wanted to preach this morning, Colossians 1.16, For by Him, that is Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. All things were created through Him and for Him. If you look at the first three verses of the Gospel of John, you hear His testimony about this Jesus. And I apologize for sniffling. I'm not crying, but I don't know why. My nose has been dripping for two days. And I just now noticed I went, again. And it's not common for me, so I apologize. But it is better than the alternative. (laughs) You have four of you running up here with Kleenex, don't you? Take care of the mess. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's, who's the Word? Jesus. Jesus. Uh-huh. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Hebrews chapter 1. Let's just get it from another writer. God, who at various times and in various ways... Spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Has in these days spoken to us by his son. Whom he has appointed heir of all things. Through whom also he made the worlds. Everything was made through Jesus. Everything was made by and through him. For the glory and the honor of God. And according to Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. That includes principalities and powers. That includes nations and governments. We could go to other scriptures, Romans chapter 13. We could talk about how God is in control of everything. Amen? Nothing is out of His reach or the span of His influence. And I believe that those nations that have bowed their knees to Him in acknowledgement of His divine favor and providence have experienced His favor. This nation has experienced the favor of God. My concern is, is how's that foundation holding up? I don't mean to bore you, but how many of you have this book? It's called The Book of Virtues. In it, there's a little story, and I'm going to make it brief. I brought this to read it, and I read it last night, but it just takes too long. How many of you remember the story of the three little pigs? You know, the mama pig, the acorn harvest failed, and she couldn't take care of those three little pigs. And so she said, it's time for you to go out and seek your own fortune. So the first little pig went out and saw a man with a load of straw and said, Sir, would you give me the straw? I need to build a house. And so he gives the little pig the straw. And as in fables, all the characters are animals. He gives the pig the straw, and the straw builds a nice little house. And he lives comfortably in his little straw house until one day the wolf comes and knocks at the door and says, Little pig, little pig. Let me in. Not by the hair of my chitty chin chin. You know the story. Well, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house in. And he huffed and he puffed and he blew the straw house away and he grabbed that little piggy and he took him to lunch. That's my version. 
The second little pig set out and saw a man with a load of sticks. Sir, would you give me those sticks? I need to build a house, in which he did. And so he built a little house and he lived comfortably in his stick house until the wolf came and said, little pig, little pig, let me in. Not by hair of my chinny chin chin. Well, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house in. And he huffed and he puffed and then he had to puff and huff. And finally he got those sticks blown down and he got that little pig and took him to lunch. Definitely not a kosher wolf. <laughs> the third little pig set out from home and saw a man with a load of bricks, as we know the story goes. He said, sir, will you give me those bricks? I need to build a house, which he did. And he built a brick house, and the wolf came along. The pig was living comfortably there, and he said, knock, 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 little pig, little pig, let me in. Not by the hair of my chinny, chin, chin. Well, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house in. And he huffed and he puffed and he huffed and he puffed and he puffed and he huffed. And he blew with all he could and finally he just got wore out. And he left. Now, there are other versions that go on much longer than that. But the story tells us of not just hard work and industry and those things, but the very truth of Psalm 11, verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? My concern is that we are seeing and living in a time when the foundations of our country and the very truths of our founding are being eroded and destroyed, dismantled systematically, but we're not done. The story's not fully told yet. And I'm going to introduce you to Dr. Jerry Johnson. Let him talk to you for three or four minutes here. And then we'll take a little break and make some more comments. Go ahead. Was the foundation of their bold action? This declaration brought with it another document. A document that most of our kids in the high school don't even know. Many of them can't even quote two or three lines of it. It's called the Constitution. And it explains the answer that the foundation is the acknowledgement of truth of the Almighty, of the absolute belief in God's benevolence alone. And so the underlying premise is the cornerstone of the republic. It is the rock of the declaration and the subsequent constitution. Now think about how we receive such incredible leadership. You say, Jerry, did these guys just get together in Philadelphia and one of them had a good idea and another one of them had a good idea? Well, do you remember what they wrote? They wrote that the Spirit of God came over them and the Spirit of God began to speak to them about the founding of this country. For instance, and don't let me bore you, but don't miss this, please. The United States Constitution is original because it was a new form of government. For instance, it articulates the separation of powers, granting specific powers to the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judicial branch. And then it established a system of checks and balances. And, and it adopted a, con a concept of republicanism. Article 4, Section 4 provides for the election that local, county, state, and federal levels of government. And how did we get this? The Spirit of God breathed it into the hearts of these men. 
These concepts and others did not come simply because these were brilliant men. They all said God led them through His Word for the founding of this country. For instance, Noah Webster expressed that Exodus 18.28 was the source of Article 1, Section 8. He said God showed us. It articulated the authority granted to Congress. And then Alexander Hamilton and George Washington expressed that the source for Article 1, Section 8 came from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34. And another one of those great leaders said that Deuteronomy 17.15 was the source of Article 2, Section 1, which states that the President must be born in the United States. And Article 3, Section 3 makes provision for witnesses and capital punishment. And one leader wrote in his journal that that came to them after prayer through Deuteronomy 17, verse 6. And Article 3, Section 3 precludes the bills of attainer, an act of legislature declaring a person or a group persons guilty of some crime and punishing them without the benefit of trial. And when they were quizzed how they came up with that, they said the Spirit of God led them to Ezekiel 18, verse 20. And under the leadership of the Spirit, they took pen and wrote. And so the source for all three branches of government, this incredible system, They said came from Isaiah chapter 33 verse 22. And Ezra chapter 7 verse 24 was the source for providing that churches are tax exempt. Now men and women, this is what God did. And I don't know about you, but I don't think God is finished with the United States of America, do you? And I think he's waiting for you and I to get a passion to say we can make a difference. Think of the power that is in this room alone today. It staggers me. Think of what could happen with the men and women in this room if we became filled with God's Spirit and we said, God, we understand that just as you raise up a new generation, we are asking you, not because of us, but because of you, to raise us up on behalf of this nation. Isaiah 33:22 which is referred to says this the Lord is our judge the Lord is our lawgiver the Lord is our king he will save us this was the scripture referred to just now from the fathers when they said only God can do all three of these things well he could be the king in our case the president he can he can be the lawgiver and that is our legislative branch And he can be our judge. That's our judicial branch. That's where we come up with, from the scriptures, the separation of powers that the foundation of our country rests upon. Now, tell me, how many is the first time you ever heard anything like that from your history class? You know, you keep coming to church, you're going to learn something. The pulpits of the United States shaped this country. Before it was a country. And that's something that I want to get across today. That God is in control. But this nation has strayed from its foundations. And if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? I believe the righteous need to turn the lights back on. I think we need to stand up and continue to affect our nation as believers. And not just stay down on the farm doing our own little thing and feeding ourselves and taking care of swapping groceries with a few neighbor families and going on about our business, I think we need to get out of that zone and start attacking again. 
in the spirit first by prayer and intercession and sincere love for our nation and for God. Because as long as we remain free, we'll remain a mission-sending world and country into the world. I mean, we, if we lose that, then we better start praying they send missionaries here. Amen. Let's continue and, and understand this part, that the pulpits of America shaped this country. The founders acquired all of this. You say, Jerry, such learned men, biblical men. Yes, but this is what I want to make sure I drive home before I go today. How did these men, how did they get so imbued with such biblical knowledge? You know, the founders all had a commitment to the Bible and its principles. And it was largely because they had been educated at the foot of pastors and they were daily influenced by the pastors of their day. John Adams identified Christian pastors, quote, as the greatest influence in American independence. Almost half the signers of the Declaration of Independence had been educated by Christian pastors in Christian colleges and in Christian seminaries. Those leaders regularly wrote in their journals that they routinely listened to the sermons of the pastors of their time who frequently spoke about the events of their time. The pastors taught practical Christianity. The pastors addressed the pressing events and then they brought biblical truth to those events that the men and women were being faced in that era. We can go now to the history and find out that there are about a thousand published sermons that we can access today from the revolutionary period. And do you know what we find? We don't find anemic people that are afraid to stand up or sticking their finger in the mouth trying to figure out which way the wind is blowing. In 1755, New England experienced an earthquake, for instance. And a topic by a local pastor was the Bible's teaching on earthquakes. Boston had a great fire in 1760. And so Pastor Jonathan Mayhew preached a sermon on what the Bible says about fires. In the same year, a solar eclipse occurred. And a number of pastors were preaching on what the Bible says about solar eclipses. Even the judges on the bench would occasionally preach from the bench. As was the case of Joseph Blackburn. He was sentenced for murder of George Wilkerson. And when he was being sentenced, Judge Blackburn preached to that man and said, Repent, receive Christ so you can go to heaven and not end up in hell someday. We can see that annually sermons were preached about military duty. They were called artillery sermons and they consisted of the Bible's teaching on military service. And this is interesting. Election sermons were common when the people were about to vote for candidates. We can access them. The preacher would compare the conduct of the candidate wanting to be elected to the teachings of the Word of God. A lesson of many of these sermons was that people were citizens both of heaven and they were stewards of earth. And they demonstrate that the pastors had such a biblical knowledge and such a power to their pulpit that they literally imbued those great leaders who then led by the Spirit of God crafted a dynamic nation. Pastors influenced the lives of these founders dramatically. Now they just want us to kind of stay in our little houses and not say much. 
I could tell you story after story just in the short period of my life in this community of how many times it's been so difficult even, for example, to continue in opening prayer at the city council when threat came of some kind of a lawsuit. They just skinnied down and hid and got their legal counsel and said, we're just not going to have any more prayer in Jesus' name. I think that needs to change. How many of you ever heard of McGuffey's Reader? Some of you. Have a set right here. McGuffey's Eclectic Primer, called the Primer. The first Eclectic Reader. The second Eclectic you know, for over a hundred and probably a hundred years, our public schools, these were used to teach reading. Listen to what Mr. McGuffey says. By the way, these sold like a hundred, well, one and a quarter million copies. This is just one of a hundred and a quarter million. President Lincoln called McGuffey the schoolmaster of the nation. He said, the Christian religion is the religion of our country. From it are derived our notions of character of God on the great moral governor of the universe. On its doctrines are founded the peculiarities of our free institutions. From no source has the author drawn more conspicuously than from the sacred scriptures. From all these extracts from the Bible, I make no apology. They've got, and I say they, I'm talking about media and the mainstream. They've got us backing up and apologizing all the time. They'd rather not have us apologizing because they'd rather have us down on our little plot not saying anything. Did you know of the first 108 universities founded in America, 106 were distinctly Christian? Of the first 108? Harvard University, chartered in 1636. In the original Harvard student student handbook, rule number one was that students seeking entrance must know Latin and Greek so that they could study the scriptures. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. John 17, 3, and therefore to lay Jesus Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning and seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom. Let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. And there are scriptures listed. And that for over a hundred years, more than 50% of the Harvard graduates were pastors. It's not the same at Harvard anymore. (laughs) We've got to turn the lights back on. The lights been dimmed. But you're not dim, are you? Come on. You're not them. I'm not talking about you today, am I? No. Your lights are on. Amen. City set on a hill can't be hidden. I'm going to close today by letting Del Tackett from the Truth Project give us the close off of this week's Truth Project tour. And uh, let him give us a little challenge before we go.
And this is a sample for those of you that are not part of the Truth Project, and you can be. Um, not difficult, even in Texas. You ready to roll? Let's do it. Lincoln, in his proclamation for a national day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer, I think captured, in essence, what we see before us. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we've become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Several years ago, I was in the living room, and I, and I saw my son go to the closet and get something out, and I noticed something for the first time. I said, stop, go back. He said, I was just getting my coat out. I said, no, because I noticed something. I noticed that when he opened up the closet door, that it got light in the closet. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> have, have you ever wondered if the, if the light goes out in the refrigerator? I, some of you have done this, right? You know? So I got into the closet, I shut the door, and it was dark in the closet. And then I got out, and I observed the living room. I opened up the door two or three times, and it stayed light. I discovered this principle. Darkness does not overtake light. But light overtakes darkness. And if there is darkness spreading through the land, guess what? It is not because somebody went out to the middle of Kansas and opened up a box of darkness and... <laughs> no. If darkness is spreading across the land, guess what? It's because somebody's hiding the light. Or worse than that, Jesus is removing the lampstand from his place. What is going on here? Why is this rise of hatred for America? Why is this historic revisionism going on? If the enemy can destroy the Christian's passion for America, then he has won the major battle for the soul of this nation. If you do not have a heart for her, if you do not have a passion for her, you can learn all you want about Christian worldview. You can write down all the stuff in your book, but you won't do diddly-do for her. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. And if Jesus removes the lampstand, we will become a dark nation like many who have fallen before us. Oh, Father, you have placed us within the nations in which we reside. May you give us a heart and a passion for the culture we live in. May we not turn away from your call. May we not shrink away from being the light that you've called us to be. Even though, Father, that may cause us to give the ultimate, that we would not turn away. Oh, Father, I pray for each one of these students. 
to instill within them this hunger and passion for you, this desire to be a light in a culture that is so desperately in need, weeping and wailing. And Father, if you should call them to such a situation that they must stand alone, that they would stand. Because you are the one that gives us the strength and the will and the words. Oh, may it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. From the little letter of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let's keep the lights on. City set on a hill can't be hidden. I see that hand, but there's something else happening, I think. John, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to say that for the board of directors of Big Bear City, when I was elected three years ago, and then this business came up of stop the invocations, our board of directors said no, because now we have a pastor on the board of directors. And therefore, I'm called upon each meeting to give an invocation. My point is, don't keep your life hidden. Any one of you. Don't somehow or other feel as though you can't, you're not allowed to be involved in the laws of this land. You are. You must be. Don't let this thing be destroyed. You are the light of the world I see you on a hill tonight, baby Shine your light before all men But then I see your words in there Praise your Father up in heaven I see you on a hill tonight, baby Standing tall before all men Show the things that it's been given